This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 20th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In his long career as an economist, Robert Higgs has slaughtered more than his share of sacred cows. The book Taking a Stand, Reflections on Life, Liberty, and Economics, is a decidedly different kind of book for Higgs. He spoke at the Cato Institute last week. I, I feel I learned a lot from my forays outside of academia, particularly. Uh, that's where I learned the most about how, how government actually operates, about how uh, regulation actually operates, how the legal system actually operates, is by being a participant in, in those kinds of activities. And uh, what I learned uh, exemplifies a kind of theme that runs through this new book which is that uh, things are often not what they seem to be. Uh, Indeed, they're not what they purport to be. And maybe even worse, a lot of what we see in the world of politics and government especially is a kind of ritual dance in which all the dancers know it's a ritual dance, but they don't want to come out and say that. It's bad form to speak the truth when you're involved in politics and government activities. People want to pretend uh, that certain things are being done, for example, for public-spirited reasons. When everybody and his dog knows that what's driving the process is powerful special interests, uh, wealthy people involved in politics, their friends in the Congress or the regulatory agencies. Uh, very often what we're seeing is an elaborate system of theft and misrepresentation, all covered up with ceremony and ritual that makes it seem as if it's all on the up and up. And that's the kind of overarching attitude that you find infusing the essays in this new work. Uh, I'm too old to pretend anymore. I don't have time for another 20 or 30 years of pretense. And so I have less patience with playing that game. Uh, Now, if you're in certain areas, you have to play it, because if you don't play it, you're cast into outer darkness. You just have no alternative to, to, to waltzing through the ritual dance as if people mean what they say. But we all know they don't. Uh, Where else but in politics is blurting out the truth considered a gaffe? (laughs) And it is. We all see it from time to time. Somebody leaves the microphone on when he thinks it's off, and he blurts out the truth, and that becomes a scandal. Do we want to live in a world where the truth is scandalous? Well, that's the world we live in, actually. The world of pretense and make-believe. Now, of course, this isn't uh, the case by accident. It serves various purposes. And it serves the purposes especially of incumbents, of the rich, the established, the connected, the people with political influence and clout. Uh, They like this kind of world of fake because they know what's going on and they know how to work the system. And the the fakery is for the general public. It's for the people who don't have active 
immediate involvement in what's going on in government and politics, uh, and who have to be kept uh, from becoming too restive. If people knew the truth, they'd have their pitchforks out and be, and be coming into this city uh, to set fires, probably. But uh, they don't, and they're not going to find out either. Uh, because uh, the world of politics, where politics matters, is all played between the 45-yard lines. Nobody wants to get outside the bounds of uh, what is good form. No one wants to speak the plain truth. Everybody wants to hem and haw and uh, cover up uh, one's uh, announcements and statements about how the system works. Uh, well, I've been studying this system for more than 50 years in one way or another, and I think I know a little bit about it. And that's the kind of knowledge, if indeed I'm right about its being knowledge, that you'll find inside the covers of this book, Taking a Stand. Now, the, the, the book is divided into several big, big classes, and I'll just give you a general architecture uh, in a few minutes here. I, I think we'll have more fun uh, with questions and answers, but, but uh, the book starts off with a number of essays about the state and politics, and, and the themes that run through these essays, which, uh, which have to do with all sorts of things, uh, public demonstrations, uh, uh, the nature of democracy, uh, and so forth, uh, many of them boil down to, to analyses or considerations of the seen versus the unseen, of ritual versus reality, and basically of fraud versus honesty. These are all different angles by which we can look at the fact that things are not what they seem to be or not what they're represented to be. There's a clash again and again and again. Uh, a large part of the book then has to do with the an analysis itself. How should we go about studying or learning about economics and, uh, and, and the state? And uh, my views on how economics ought to be done are, are not typical uh, of economics. Uh, economists in the mainstream of the profession. Uh, I've, uh, I, I've been a member of the mainstream profession. I was when I started out for some time, and I played their game uh, with some success. Uh, but even at the very beginning, I was not happy with how economists went about their work in some respects, and so I was a bit of a maverick. And over time, I've become more of a maverick. Uh, I gravitated away from mainstream neoclassical economics and toward Austrian economics. Uh, but uh, in some ways, I also simply gravitated toward uh, the kind of analysis that uh, can be traced back to some of the Chicagoans uh, down through the 20th century, and particularly to the um, the offshoot of, uh, of that school of economics uh, as seen in the work of Armin Alcian and others at UCLA in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, when I was a professor at the University of Washington, uh, we had an economics department at the time that was a, 
a preeminent uh, department in the development of the analysis of, of property rights and transaction costs. And, and, uh, and I still very much believe in that kind of neo-institutional analysis, and I've uh, continued to do that from time to time throughout my career. Uh, one of the things that uh, is important in doing economic analysis right is disaggregation. Uh, particularly when we when we look at the whole economy, uh, economists for actually throughout my lifetime now have been uh, using a very uh, aggregated form of analysis, which we can trace back to to Keynes and the early Keynesians who who wanted to represent the whole economy in in very big chunks. And macroeconomics has continued to be done that way, although it's evolved through many, many iterations of revision and, and has gone to, to new non-Keynesian or even anti-Keynesian forms. It's continued to remain a very aggregative uh, type of analysis. And as a result, I think it's often very misleading uh, uh, indeed, utterly wrong in many cases, totally misses the point. Economics is a, is a, uh, a way of thinking about choice, a way of talking about how changes in relative costs and relative benefits lead people to alter their decisions. And you, you have none of that in what is called macroeconomics. It's all very mechanical. In the early days, uh, there, there was even a representation of the economy uh, uh, known as the hydraulic model, which consisted of a lot of tubes and colored water flowing around. It was a totally engineering conception of how the economy works. That's wrong. The economy is not a machine. It's not, a, <laughs> it's not an engineering contraption. It's, uh, it's an incredibly complex, ever-changing form of human interaction, cooperation, and competition. And uh, you, you can't understand how it works if you think it's a mechanical thing. And if it has a problem, you can't fix it with some kind of mechanical solution. Indeed, if you go about it that way, you're almost certain to make matters worse rather than better. I also spend some time distinguishing between genuine explanations uh, and what I would think often verge on ideological apologetics. Uh, the so-called new welfare economics, which, which has been heavily focused on the identification of, of so-called market failures, uh, classification of market failures, the recommendation of government policy to remedy these market failures. Uh, this has been actually a negative development in economics, in my judgment. It's done much more harm than good. It's diverted a lot of smart people from using their brains productively. And it's led to an economics profession which, uh, which actually believes that by going and doing some equations on the blackboard, uh, they've discovered something about how the world works uh, that's sufficient to justify the use of government policy to change the world, which is to say sufficient to justify the intrusion of people with guns or threats of using guns into the lives of human beings uh, with the purported goal of improving efficiency or uh, the public's well-being in some way. Uh, I think 
We ought to be much more careful before we send out people with guns to do anything, anything. And we certainly ought to be very, very careful about making economic policy and having the government enforce these rules on people on the basis of blackboard demonstrations of market failure. Um, I speak quite a bit about an idea I've developed over the years called regime uncertainty. And um, this is an idea that has a long heritage. It goes back to, uh, to many people's discussions of business confidence and how business confidence enters into the decision making of, of people, especially during uh, crises, uh, uh, financial debacles, uh, other periods in which the economy uh, enters into kind of uncertainty or turmoil. Uh, but regime uncertainty, as I've developed the idea, has to do with people's confidence in the security of their private property rights. Uh, it's not, a, not about, you know, what kind of monetary policy the Fed is going to carry out or anything like that, because the name regime uncertainty has been used by other economists in, in other senses. But in my sense, it's about, it's about the security people feel as they make their plans about the future with regard to will they be able to control their own property? Will someone intrude on their decision-making or override their decisions? Will the fruits of their investments be taken away from them by taxes or regulation? Uh, things of that sort. And I first developed this idea in, in, in relation to studying the long duration of the Great Depression, because it became quite obvious to me through the years of studying that particular episode that, that from 1935 <coughs> on, really until the end of the decade, the Roosevelt administration had created tremendous fear in the minds of private investors. Many people actually believed that the, the government was making itself uh, a dictatorial, and Roosevelt in particular was attempting to mimic the dictatorship of Mussolini or Adolf Hitler. Uh, now, we may in retrospect look back and say that was all hyperbole. Uh, these people had lost their grip. But uh, if we did that, we'd be wrong. I don't think they had lost their grip. If you put yourself in their situation and consider what they knew, what they saw, how the government was dealing with them, what the President of the United States and his closest advisors were saying and doing, they had very good reason to fear that the private property order of the United States was on the verge of utter destruction. And so they acted accordingly, which is to say that long-term private investment never came close to reviving during the 1930s. And that was a major reason, if not the major reason, why the depression persisted uh, on and on and on, uh, well past the end of the decade of the 1930s. But regime uncertainty uh, shows up in other places and at other times. And what I've argued recently and what I discuss in a number of the essays in this book is how it has reappeared uh, since 2007. Uh, the financial uh, catastrophes of late 2008 in particular triggered a tremendous amount of panic in many circles and uh, led the led government to intervene in a whole variety of, of ways that had never intervened before that uh, uh, 
I don't think any economist, any economist ever expected the Fed to do what it did from 2008 onward. I mean, the magnitude of the actions the Fed, Fed took in 2008 and 2009, and to some extent since then as well, the fact that it's held short-term interest rates in a negative real range for now seven years and has thereby brought about a massive misallocation and, and malinvestment of resources during that period, not to, minish, not to mention impoverishing a whole class of people who expected to live on interest earnings in their retirement. No one expected that. This was extraordinary. No one ever expected the government to nationalize the, the, almost the entire uh, lending for residential mortgages. Uh, uh, Fannie and Freddie were you know, pretending to be private institutions uh, up to 2008. And there were you know, some people understood that wasn't quite the case. But nonetheless, they were paying private investors uh, uh, income. Uh, but of course now they're they're totally state-run operations, and uh, of course the government nationalized to some extent. Hundreds of banks uh, took over a couple of big automobile companies, and took countless other actions that were simply extraordinary. Now, what what happened as a result of all this, uh, along with the election of a new president who pushed for Obamacare, and and uh, people in the Congress put pushing to to create a massive reorganization of financial regulation and, and, and other things, all this going on at once, uh, created a resurgence of regime uncertainty. And uh, as a result, uh, private net business investment has remained below its pre-crisis levels virtually ever since. I mean, there. <laughs> I haven't looked at the data recently, but if there's been a full recovery, it's, it's only in the past year or so that it's happened. Now, private business net investment happens to be the preeminent driver of economic growth. If you create conditions in which that kind of investment is suppressed, you guarantee you're going to have an anemic economy. And that's exactly what we've had ever since that recession broke. So uh, regime uncertainty is a theme that I've come back to quite a lot. And some of the more substantive essays in this book have to do with it. Um, uh, I have other things to say about economic analysis. I won't talk about those right now because they're, they're of interest probably more to economists and uh, uh, serious students of economics than they are to people in general. Uh, but I do have a lot of essays in the book about the current recession, about the policies that were undertaken in response to it, a lot about the monetary policy making, and also about the fact that labor markets uh, underwent uh, some extraordinary changes, uh, particularly uh, an abrupt reduction in the in the ratio of employment to, to population, uh, which uh, the ratio that fell by about five percentage points abruptly in about a year's time in 2008 and has remained depressed ever since. What we have here 
in the United States is, is five or six million people who, as it were, disappeared from economic life so far as being producers is concerned. And, and nobody's quite sure what they're doing. Where'd they go? How are they surviving? What, who are these people and what are they up to now? Uh, and and uh, this, is, this is not a, a trivial thing. We're a big economy, it's true, but when, when you have five or six million producers just evaporate, that's a serious matter uh, so far as uh, producing goods and services is concerned. So I do discuss that and uh, put it in historical perspective in the book. Uh, if you thumb through the book, you'll find that it has a lot of graphs in it, even though it's not, as I said, a scholarly book. I did want to give some evidence uh, when I discussed some of these topics that I wasn't just uh, blowing hot air. Uh, the final substantive section of the book is about libertarianism. I've been a libertarian of some kind almost my entire adult life. Uh, but the kind of libertarian I am has changed over the years. Uh, I've become a crazier and crazier libertarian, I guess some would say. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm, I've still been invited back to Cato, so <laughs> I can't be too nutty. Uh, but anyhow, uh, read those essays and judge for yourself. Uh, I, I uh, in particular, I'm a little different from many libertarians in that I don't, I don't like to fight my fellow libertarians. I, I, I don't like to engage in doctrinal infighting. Uh, there, there's, there's just one case, and I do discuss it in the book, there's one case in which I do draw the line, and that is the issue of war and peace, because I think that is utterly fundamental to everything that libertarianism is and depends on. Uh, if, we, if we hand the war-making key to the state, we might as well just report for incarceration. Because once the state goes to war, it will override every other consideration in the service of its war-making. It's done this again and again. In fact, if you read my earlier book, Crisis and Leviathan, and some of my other work, you'll see a tremendous amount of evidence that World War I and World War II were the big events, not the Depression, not the New Deal. That was a kind of follow-on or sequel of World War I. The two world wars were the occasions when liberty was slaughtered in this country. And not only do people not understand that, uh, not only do they not understand, by and large, how critical war-making is uh, in the preservation of liberty or the destruction of liberty, but the, there's actually this kind of conservative uh, uh, myth that goes around about how the, the government's wars have been the glorious occasions when governments saved our liberty, which is total hogwash. It's utterly ahistorical. There's not a shred of, uh, 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 of substance in that claim. Before both of those world wars, Americans were freer than they were after them. And it wasn't just a coincidence. It was because of how those wars were fought and because of their legacies. So that theme, which has run through my work for decades, uh, is still there. It's still there, and particularly in my understanding of 
what libertarian doctrine ought to, to be. Uh, and the final part of the book is, is really a set of homages, uh, or in some cases almost obituaries, but I only wrote these about people I knew personally. Uh, some of them, uh, well, they're, my parents are there, uh, some of my important teachers, colleagues, comrades, friends, uh, all people who were important to me in my career. And uh, those are very personal, and uh, you know you may want to skip those. Uh, uh, but these uh, these people I knew or worked with or, or revered in some cases as well uh, were 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 wonderful people. And just as no man is an island, no scholar is either. And. Uh, if you want to see a beautiful illustration of that in an operation right now, get acquainted with George Mason University, uh, where there's a tremendous amount of uh, cooperation, uh, of joint work, of professors and teachers interacting together productively. Uh, a very different uh, situation from what you'd find in, in, in a typical university, where there's a good deal of distance between the professors and the students, and it's only the fortunate few students who, who find a mentor or who are able to interact productively with their teachers. Uh, I was fortunate. I had many, many people who helped me along the way. Robert Higgs is author of Taking a Stand, Reflections on Life, Liberty, and Economics. You can watch the full forum at Cato.org.